Women have played a significant role in our society and culture through time. So let's take a look at the history from the women's side. I'm your host, Brittany, and welcome to Her Story Sessions. Welcome back to the fourth and final part of Radium Girls. Barry was starting to doubt the trial would finish with any time left for the women to receive the benefits, and his old boss, Judge Clark, had reached out to him to ask to consider settling. Grace admitted she didn't do much for fear of being scratched. She bruised easily, her skin broke easily, and the smallest scratches wouldn't heal. Catherine Schaub, who had found comfort in going to church, collapsed while there just a few days after Clark's phone call to Barry. This made his mind up, and he decided that if a fair settlement offer was made, they should take it. USRC held a board meeting to discuss possible settlement terms. It would be better for them to settle, as the negative publicity and overwhelming support of the women would go away sooner, and they assumed there would be more lawsuits in the future, which would be easier to handle if the five women weren't still all over the front pages. Barry met with the company lawyers in Judge Clark's chambers, and they made an offer of $10,000 for each. The women were not about to accept it, though. After medical bills and litigation costs, they would be left with hardly anything. As Grace put it, I will not grab the first thing that comes along. I will not knuckle down to them now after all I've suffered. Quinta put it simply, I have two small children. I have to see that they are provided for after I'm gone. Barry pitched a new set of terms to USRC. He suggested a lump sum of $15,000, a yearly pension of $600, past and future medical expenses, and for USRC to cover all court costs. He pitched this to them on a Friday, and they took the weekend to think about it. On Monday, June 4th of 1928, they met again in Judge Clark's chambers. They met for 45 minutes, and when they were done, had to use the rear stairwell to avoid the large amount of press that was camped outside. Barry met with the women that afternoon to tell them the good news. The company wanted the lump sum to be lowered to the $10,000, their original amount, but they agreed to all the other terms as well. The women posed for a photo shoot for the media afterwards, smiling with true happiness for once. They were happy that it was over and that they would have money now and get some rest without worrying about the court anymore. The formal announcement was given by Judge Clark to more than 300 people that had gathered to hear it. There was a few more parts to the settlement that the company lawyer Markley had insisted upon, though. It specified that the company admitted no guilt, with Markley specifically adding, the firm was not negligent and the claims of the plaintiffs, even if well-founded, are barred by the statute of limitations. The company also issued a statement that its motivation for settling was purely humanitarian and ended the statement by stating that they hoped treatment for the women would find them a cure. That leads to another part of the settlement, which set up a committee of three doctors to examine the women regularly. The company would choose one, the women another, and the third would be agreed upon by both sides. If at any time two of them believe that the women are no longer suffering from radium poisoning, the payments would stop. It was obvious that the company was hoping to finagle their way out of continuing payments. But the women still had their lump sums that they had received up front and all put it to use right away. Several of them bought cars to make it easier for them to get around and also invested some of it, except for Grace, who invested all $10,000. Catherine gave her father $2,000 to put on his mortgage, saying, It made me so happy to see father relieved of those worries. She also went out and bought herself a typewriter and new clothes, and spent the entire summer in the countryside, finding relief outside of the city. Edna, who had a love of music, bought a piano and a radio. 
Albina and her husband went on a road trip to Canada for the summer, and Quinta and her husband took a few trips to Ashbury Park. She was careful to not spend too much of it, wanting to make sure there would be plenty left for their kids. They also now had more hope for the future, as Dr. Von Sachiki announced that he believed they would live much longer than originally thought. Dr. Martland agreed, noting that there had not been a death of a dial painter for a few years. He was keeping track of a list of names he and Catherine had made years ago. He theorized that there were two types of cases. The first were the early ones, with the severe anemia and the jaw necrosis that Molly Magia and Marguerite Carlo suffered, and the late ones, those that had either never had the jaw infections and anemia or managed to make it through. He blamed the difference on the mesotherium, which had a half-life of seven years. As I mentioned in the second part, Undark, the paint used by USRC, had mesotherium in it, which the other companies did not have. The women were attacked by this much more at first, but then after seven years, it was diminished when the mesotherium entered its next half-life. They still suffered from radium after that, but it was much less aggressive, and Dr. Martland believed that while they may still be crippled by it, they could survive it. This at least granted the women more time than they had originally believed they had. After the summer was over, the women had their first exam with a committee of doctors at a New York hospital. The company had appointed James Ewing, a radium medicine specialist that had spoken out against Dr. Marland, and the mutually agreed upon doctor was Lloyd Craver. Both were consultants at a hospital, quote, closely allied with the use of radium. The doctor appointed by the women was Edward Crumbar. They all underwent physical exams, as well as a radioactivity breath test. Two of the doctors were convinced this would clear the company, but Dr. Ewing wrote later afterwards that they, quote, proved positive rather to our surprise. But he wasn't convinced still and continued, the question now arises whether there might be some kind of fraud by the patient. To make the tests absolutely trustworthy, we think it will be necessary to carry out the test at some hotel where the patients can undress. So, in November, the women went to Hotel Marseille to be examined again, but Dr. Craver, the mutually agreed-upon doctor, was the only one of the three to be there, and taking charge was Dr. Schlunt, the, quote, intimate friend of Vice President Barker, along with Barker himself, who assisted them, and a Dr. G. Faya was also there. Dr. Schlunt had already declared that these women were not radioactive back in April for the court exams. They didn't see this as an impartial exam, but they had all agreed to medical procedures as part of the settlement, so they felt they didn't have an option to refuse, and so they had to strip and go through the tests with the company men closely watching them. As soon as they were done, though, Grace went and called Barry. He was outraged, writing to the USRC that he saw the hotel setting as suspicious and that the presence of Barker and Schlunt breached the settlement agreement. But Dr. Fila had declared that all five were radioactive along with Dr. Craver. This was bad news for the company, who were receiving more lawsuits, and one of them brought by Barry himself. They wanted the five to be deemed free of radium so that they could use it in their defenses. They also couldn't use Flynn anymore, as a judge had ruled only a physician could examine May Cubberly Canfield for her case, which was the one Barry was representing. Nothing had ever happened after Barry reported Flynn for practicing without a license. A year after the settlement agreement, USRC was growing frustrated that the women were still alive, still showing positive radioactivity results in test after test, and that they were still paying when the women consulted doctors and bought medicines. They wanted to stop paying their medical bills and get the women to accept a single lump sum. They argued over every single bill, and when Dr. Ewing warned them that they should be, quote, cautious about assuming that every expense they incur will be paid. 
The company had expected the committee of doctors to announce that they were no longer suffering from the radium poisoning, but when that didn't happen, they tried to get out of the agreement another way. Meanwhile, the women did their best to get through all the experimental treatments and tests the doctors wanted them to try. They never got to know the results of the tests, and they usually had to travel to the hospital that Craver and Ewing worked at in New York, which was difficult for them. Edna's husband told Barry at one point that it was difficult for her to go without injury, and last time she had been bedridden for a week afterwards. Edna's blonde hair had now turned white, and they all looked older than they were and had slack skin around their chins from having parts of their jawbones removed. Grace by now had had 25 operations on her jaw. Still, she was the happiest of the five and still had her bank job, which was understanding of the time she needed off for tests. She said she would continue working as long as she could because she liked it. Catherine was living in a rural convalescent home 12 miles outside of town and wrote that the setting inspired her to get well so that she could enjoy the flowers and the sunshine. Albino was enjoying small things like the movies and her radio and occasional short trips to the countryside, sometimes with Quinta, until Quinta had to be admitted to the hospital in September of 1929. She was much worse off now and couldn't even sit up. It was assumed she wouldn't make it through this time. But a month later, she was still fighting, and her doctors were amazed when she started to show signs of recovery. Her husband even got the house ready for her return in time for Thanksgiving and their daughter's 10th birthday. Quinta asked Grace to go out and buy the children Christmas presents on her behalf, determined to make it a great holiday for them. On December 6th, she seemed to be herself again, and when her husband visited, they talked about Christmas, hoping she'd be home for all the festivities. She was almost well, except for the swelling at the top of her thigh that was painful. She got tired during this visit, though, and asked if he didn't mind leaving a little early so she could get some rest. The next day, Saturday, December 7th, the hospital called him to tell him Quinta had sank into a coma just before 2 p.m. He drove as fast as he could to get there, getting pulled over twice on the way, but let go each time when he told the police why he was speeding. But he was too late, and she was gone by the time he had got there. The swelling in her leg had actually been a sarcoma, the same kind that had killed Ella Eckert so quickly a few years ago. Dr. Martland had come to conduct an autopsy that confirmed it. Speaking about both Quinta and Ella, he stated, The bones of the victims had actually died before they did. Her friends were devastated by the loss of Quinta, and her sister Albina collapsed when she heard the news. She had now lost both of her sisters and struggled to attend the funeral, both mentally and physically. Quinta was buried on December 10, 1929, next to Molly. In 1930, Catherine had to move back to the city, having used up huge sums of her money trying to get her health back out in the countryside and was dependent on the 600 annual amount from her settlement. She now could only walk with a cane or crutches. But one day, she slipped trying to get up a low step, falling hard on her knee, and felt the fragile bone fracture. But when Dr. Humphreys had an x-ray done, he found out that she also had a sarcoma in the knee. She was admitted to the hospital for 10 weeks while they did x-ray treatments. It helped with the swelling, but after months in a plaster cast, they eventually told her that the bone, quote, didn't knit the way it should. She would have to wear a metal brace from now on. She recalled, A lump came to my throat as the doctor fastened onto my leg the strange contravance. I cried a little bit, but my faith consoled me. Still, she was depressed by this and having mental health issues again, saying, my head had me full of fears, couldn't tell if it was mental or real. She also now refused the treatments that doctors Ewing and Craver suggested, stating it was all, quote, bosh. 
The other women were also starting to stand up to the doctor's committee, and Dr. Crumbar wrote how unsatisfactory the results were, and that it was difficult to get them to come see the doctors and that they would not accept their treatments. But these doctors also controlled the payments for their medical care. Soon Grace was told that she could no longer see Dr. McCaffrey, who she had been consulting, and they also brought up concerns about them seeing Dr. Humphreys, who they'd been seeing since before they knew what they had. The company still was fighting every single bill, even though they were doing financially pretty well, despite the Wall Street crash the year before. Then, in the summer of 1930, Irene Colby Laporte, who had worked with Grace as a dial painter during World War I, noticed there was swelling that interfered with intercourse. She had already had three miscarriages by that time. Her husband took her to see Dr. Humphreys, who diagnosed a sarcoma about the size of a walnut. She declined rapidly after that, and her whole leg and side swelled, paralyzing her. She was admitted to the hospital in March of 1931, but by then there wasn't much they could do for her other than relieve the pain. They called in Dr. Martland in April, and he had to inform her husband that it was definitely radium poisoning, and she only had about six weeks to live. They wanted to spare Irene from the news, but she knew, and even told one of the physicians that she knew she was dying of radium poisoning. Martland shared his new findings, having seen enough cases to know now that these latent sarcomas could lay dormant for years before suddenly appearing and taking over quickly. He stated, When I first described this disease, there was a strong tendency among some of those interested in the production of and the therapeutic use of radium to place the entire blame on mesotherium. In the cases autopsied recently, the mesotherium has disappeared while the radium persists. I am now of the opinion that the normal radioactivity of the human body should not be increased. To do so is dangerous. He now believed any and all dial painters that had ever lip-pointed would have latent sarcomas in them. Irene filed a claim for damages against USRC on May 4th, but was willing to settle. But the company was fed up with settlements at this point and didn't accept. Irene died on June 16, 1931, with a mass that was bigger than two footballs by the end. Her husband, Vincent Laporte, would continue fighting in the courts for his wife for several years, and Irene's case against URC would eventually lead to a final judgment for all of the women that had worked in USRC's plant in Orange, New Jersey. The company was still fighting the women's medical bills, too. In February of 1932, the four remaining women received a letter from Dr. Ewing that told them that no bills would be approved if the services had not been first approved by Dr. Craver and refused any medicine that they thought wasn't useful, routine visits to doctors, and home nurses, the last of which the women were becoming even more reliant on, even to help them dress as their conditions worsened. They claimed it was to prevent exploitation of the company. His letter mentioned, quote, the very depressed state of business. As the economy was collapsing, so were their sales. Catherine pushed back against their experimental treatments even more because of this decision, and the doctors complained that she was the most difficult to handle, and one said, I am really at a loss as to what to do with this highly hysterical woman. The company was also suffering because of the case of Eben Byers that had been brought against them. He was a wealthy industrialist and playboy who raced horses. After he was injured in 1927, his doctors prescribed Radithor, a radium-infused tonic water, which got their radium from USRC. He consumed several thousand bottles of it. He suffered jaw issues and gave evidence to the FTC that Radithor was at fault and died of radium poisoning in March of 1932, and the authorities reacted quickly. 
They had issued a cease and desist order against Redithor in December of 1931, and the FDA would later declare radium medicines illegal, and the American Medical Association removed the internal use of radium from their new and non-official remedies list, which had still been there even after the dial painter's deaths were discovered. USRC supplied radium for plenty of products that were suddenly banned, and the radium industry at large was collapsing. While it's a shame that it took this case for anyone to do anything, the women were vindicated in a way. The public finally believed the women. Before this, some still believed that they had just schemed to get money out of the company. In February of 1933, Catherine was back in the hospital because of her knee. The tumor had been steadily growing bigger and was now at 49 centimeters. The reduction had been undone and it had recently broken through the skin and the lower end of her femur was sticking out. So now she had to have it constantly bandaged. Dr. Humphreys tried to convince her to have the leg amputated, but she stubbornly refused at first. When she finally gave in and agreed, Dr. Humphreys had to tell her that she and her leg were in too bad a shape to go through such a serious operation. She continued to worsen and then died on February 18th of 1933 at the age of 30. In July of that year, Grace, the group's unofficial leader this whole time, was bedridden with her mother caring for her. In September, she was admitted to the hospital with a sarcoma growing in her leg that Dr. Humphreys was worried about. She succumbed to it on October 27, 1933. Her mother said, It was not death of which Grace was afraid. It was the dread of the suffering, the eternal suffering, the years of torment. She was brave until the last. Now only Edna and Albino were left, but both were doing surprisingly well. Although Edna's legs were permanently crossed and her spine was now affected, she could still get around with a cane and even hosted bridge parties. She took up crocheting, a hobby she could do while sitting in her chair for hours on end. She eventually developed a sarcoma of the femur and died on March 30, 1939. Albina's spine had also been affected, and she wore a steel corset now, but she was still able to walk, albeit also with a cane and tiny steps. Her hair had also turned completely white, like Edna's, although she was only 37. She ended up living until she was 51, though, also dying of a leg sarcoma in November 18, 1946, two weeks before her 25th wedding anniversary with her husband James. These women, and countless others, contributed to the future safety regulations and laws. World War II brought a new demand for luminous dials for military equipment, much larger than the first one had brought. Safety standards were put in place for the new wave of dial painters. USRC alone increased its personnel by 1,600%. Glenn Seaborg, a chemist working on the Manhattan Project, insisted that research be done on radioactive plutonium, and it was found to settle in the bones the same way radium does. This insistence was attributed to the dial painters. He wrote in his diary, As I was making the rounds of the laboratory rooms this morning, I was suddenly struck by the disturbing vision of workers in the radium dial painting industry. The Manhattan Project issued non-negotiable safety guidelines based on radium safety standards. After the war, an official in the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission wrote, If it hadn't been for those dial painters, the Manhattan Project's management could have reasonably rejected the extreme precautions that were urged on it and thousands of workers might well have been, and still might be, in great danger. The world then entered the atomic age, and the arms race began. The growing unease about radioactive fallout from test bombs led to the AEC forming a committee to examine the long-term health risks to the public from these tests. 
They specifically were going to sodium strontomia 90, which was chemically similar to radium. But there was only one group of people that they could study that had been exposed to internal radiation, the dial painters. There were still dial painters living. Dr. Martland had discovered that they would all develop sarcomas at some point, but for some it took years or decades to appear, and so they were still many alive in their 50s. They searched these women out using old employment records, even hiring private investigators to find them. Many of them were willing to help, and even family members agreed to test, since they had lived with the radioactive women. Grace's little brother, Art, was one of them. He turned out to be fine, though. There was another woman, though, that had died of radium poisoning when it was her sister that had worked as a dial painter. They had shared a bed at the time. They ended up having thousands of women participate, and they studied these women through the rest of their lives. Dr. Martland had also collected tissue and bone samples from all of the women he had autopsied in the 20s, and these were added to the study archives. Years later, families that had lost members to the poisoning agreed to have them exhumed and studied as well, thinking if it could help save others, then that would have been what the women would have wanted. Many who took part in the study donated their body to science so that they could continue to contribute to it. The experiences of the women directly led to the regulation of radioactive industries and atomic power still used in 56 countries and in nuclear ships and submarines can now be safely operated. Their cases also led to legal changes that protected their employees, ensured their right to see any results of medical tests done by their employers, and ultimately to the the development of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. If you stuck it out through all four parts of this, thank you. I mentioned in the very beginning that I used the book Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women by Kate Moore, and again, I highly recommend this book to anyone interested in this topic. The book has a whole other part that takes place in Ottawa, Illinois that I didn't go over here, but those women's stories deserve just as much recognition as the New Jersey women I covered. That's all for today, and thank you for attending this Her Story session. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Her Story Session, and be sure to click follow for more episodes.